Greetings and welcome to what should be episode 12 of our series. Before I get started, I'm going to check the sound. So hold, bear with me for one second. Sound looks good. And I'm going to adjust the Facebook comments as well. So hopefully this will be visible to me during the discussion. YouTube comments should be visible as always. And as usual, audience questions, audience participation is more than welcome. Please feel free to comment. As uh, I usually disclaim, the Twitter responses don't immediately come to me. I don't know if they ever come to me. But in any event, I must, they must come to me when I go to Twitter. So in any event, here's what we have. We have a discussion of Dr. Kenneth M. Wilson's book. It is a book called Augustine's Conversion from Traditional Free Choice to Non-Free Free Will. And in this discussion, we've, we've encountered lots of interesting topics, lots of interesting issues so far. So one of those interesting topics and discussion points was actually a discussion that we had in the, uh, let's see, this was, hmm, I have to, it was from, I believe it was from last time's discussion. I could probably find it quickly. Uh, let's see if I can find it quickly. Hmm. No. I'm not finding it very quickly, but the, let me try one more time. There's an argument and the argument is, okay, so I found the citation. The citation is from Against Celsus 220. And you may recall, we, we came across Against Celsus 220 last time because against Celsius 220 was quoted by uh, Dr. Wilson. He actually he cited and quoted a big block of against Celsius 220. So we analyzed it. And one of the things we came across was an argument that was known as the lazy argument. And I found it interesting, fascinating really, because the Here's here. I'll present you my screen for a moment so you can see what I'm talking about. Let's see. That's not the one. Here we go. We'll just go to Wikipedia. So, you know, not my favorite source on the planet, but at least it will be of some interest, I hope. And as you can see, there's this lazy idle, lazy argument or idle argument, which Origin presents, and they have a, a quotation here, it's faded that you'll cover from this illness. Wikipedia has it, doesn't, doesn't mention the original citation, but it is from, again, Celsius 220. And when Origin is using this argument, what's interesting, or I guess from my standpoint, kind of fascinating is that he's not the original person who came up with the idea. He put it in a very effective form, but the earliest surviving text uh, that has the full argument is Cicero's On Fate and uh, Aristotle's De Interpretatione, obviously not the original title. Chapter nine has that. And, uh, oh, here it is. It says against Celsius 220. I just uh, must have overlooked that the previous time. In any event, the point is, uh, I found this fascinating because it demonstrates that Origen is reliant on the arguments by preceding philosophers. He was educated in philosophy, not that's not always for the better, but it is true that he has this philosophical influence in his system. So whatever else we might say, it's not he's not a pure biblicist in the sense that he never uses anything from anywhere else but he doesn't treat Aristotle as an infallible source. He doesn't treat him as having that level. So the, uh, the general idea of this argument is, uh, I thought it was interesting that it was presented this way. It said the, this argument is an argument that attempts to undermine the philosophical doctrine of fatalism. That was the 
the characterization that struck, well, it came to my attention that it was older than origin by chance because CJ Cox in his debate with my friend Dan brought up this argument uh, or the existence of this argument in one of his discussions. And that's what made me dig deeper to see who else besides origin had said this. And indeed, as, as you can see, there's a long history. Uh, but in any event, what's interesting about Wikipedia's description here is that it's an, uh, the argument itself is brought against fatalism. And yet, if you remember from our discussion last time, you could see what, what use Origen himself made of it and whether he responded to the argument as the person having to answer the argument or whether he was posing the argument as the person criticizing some other view. So that question, I, I, I leave you uh, for you know, for you to to consider. I my own take, if you recall from last time, is that Origin is saying that the argument's ridiculous because it under it fails to recognize that not only the ends but also the means to the ends are decreed by God. Which, uh, you know, using Wikipedia's categories would put him in a particular category. But Wikipedia is hardly the be all or end all, and often prone to contamination from. Uh, especially on philosophical topics, it's potentially at risk of some editing that's favorable to one view or another. So I'm, you know, don't don't rely purely on Wikipedia. It's a nice starting point sometimes to go find other sources. And coming back, we are not going to be discussing Dr. Wilson as uh, in the docs of Wikipedia. Instead, we're actually going to consider Dr. Wilson's own words. And for this, let me share a different screen. Hopefully I can find the right one to share. This should be perfect. So as you can see on the screen here, we have a continuation of, and I, I've scanned it in here just so you can see it while we discuss it. I'm not offering these to anybody uh, <laughs> for their own personal use, obviously, just for our own uh, discussion purposes here. And this is from page 68 of this very book. So what this text says, as you remember, we had discussed last time the portion that's found at the, where it says Celsus did not stand alone in his error, since Greek philosophy had also concluded that foreknowledge proved determinism. And we had, went, we had gone to the Philocalia 23.7 to see what Origen said there. But now, we're going to turn to the next part of that same paragraph, the part that says, Origen also corrects an error. And you can see that starts just below the top of the sti sticky note, right after that citation of Philokalia 23.7. So Origen also corrects an error in the prevailing pagan and heretical beliefs where subjunctive moods or imperatives in scripture were interpreted as predetermined inevitable results, thus destroying free choice. And he cites to first principles three, two, three. That's book three, chapter two, section three. And unfortunately for us, we can't do what we usually like to do when he's been citing from book three, chapter one, where we provide the Greek and the Latin. We're going to have to stick with Latin only because, uh, as you can see here, there's this uh, Latin only, there's no Greek. And let me just see if there's a better way for me to present. I think, here we go. Uh, that's not much better for you to read unless you, better view of me, but not of the words. So I apologize for the small type if you're trying to read. If you go to the, uh, to my blog, you can find links to the material if I've done that correctly. And this would be the first link and you have to scroll down to section three, I believe. But in any event, this is, uh, this is what we are going to consider right now. I'm for my own reading purposes. I'm going to get my grab myself a bigger copy, just because I'm having trouble myself reading it from the screen, as I'm sure you are too. And I don't want to be squinting and staring at the screen. One second, please. All right. So, first principles. Uh, chapter 2, Section 3. This says that there are certain sins, however, which do not proceed from the opposing powers, but take their beginnings from the natural movements of the body, 
is manifestly declared by the Apostle Paul in the passage, the flesh, the, the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things you would. If then the flesh lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, we have occasionally to wrestle against flesh and blood, i.e. as being men and walking according to the flesh and not capable of being tempted by greater than human temptations. Since it said of us, there has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able. For as the presidents of the public games, now I pause for a second here. So he introduces this question of, and it's an interesting question, a question that comes up a lot, but this question of whether there's sins that take their origins not from opposing the opposing powers, meaning something like the stars, I believe, I have to double check if that's what he has in mind by opposing powers. But the key thing is not so much where they do come from as, or where they don't come from as where they do, which is the natural movements of the body, this lusts of the flesh. And then he talks a little bit about temptation, but now he's going to draw an interesting analogy or comparison. And I say he, again, keeping in mind, this is the Latin, so it's hard to know for sure how much is origin and how much is his interpreter, but we've seen that in the other sections where we can verify, there's a fairly good chunk of similarity between the, the Latin and the Greek. So let's trust this as best we can for now. For as the presidents of the public games do not allow the competitors to enter the lists indiscriminately or fortuitously, but after careful examination, pairing in a most impartial consideration either of size or age, this individual with that, boys, for example, with boys, men with men, who are nearly related to each other in age or strength. So also we must understand the procedures of divine providence, which arranges on most impartial principles, all who descend into the struggles of this human life, according to the nature of each individual's power, which is known only to him who alone beholds the hearts of men. So that one individual fights against one temptation of the flesh, another against a second, one is exposed to its influence for so long a period of time, another only for so long. One is tempted by the flesh to this or that indulgence, another to one of a different kind. One has to resist this or that hostile power, another has to combat two or three at the same time. Or at one time, this hostile influence at that, another that, at some particular date having to resist one enemy and at another a different one, being after the performance of certain acts exposed to one set of an enemy, uh, one set of enemies, after others to a second. So you can see the picture he provides. He does, here he is describing God's divine providence in terms that are controlling terms, but not absolutely controlling, at least to the way that he's presented it so far. So he's, he compares the divine providence to the presidents of the public games. And by the public games here, I think it's fair to picture something like, uh, something like the, gladi the gladiator matches but maybe not even something as violent as the gladiator matches, maybe even just wrestling matches or boxing matches. But these fighting matches, if you're familiar at all with any of these uh, pugilistic sports, generally speaking, they, people who are in charge of the events take care to match people by, in, let's say in wrestling and boxing, it's often that they're matched by weight. So there'll be weight classes. People who are only weigh 80 pounds will only fight against people who weigh up to 80 pounds. 80 to 90, I don't know the exact boundaries. I'm only passingly familiar with these things, so I apologize if I'm misspeaking. And again, there may be also some age discrimination as well. So, you know, underage people may be only fighting with other uh, children and adults fighting with adults. So that it's not some, uh, you know, 40-year-old man who weighs 80 pounds fighting against 80-pound 12-year-olds but actually there's an, an effort to create some kind of balance between it. Now, the purpose in a, in a, this isn't the point that Origen's making, but the point in the public games is to make the games interesting. But when he says, God's faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above what you're able, and there's no temptation that comes to us except what's common to man, and we can't be tempted, we're not capable of handling temptations that are, are greater than human temptations, 
Well, what Origen has in mind is that providence arranges it so that you're never faced with a, with a more with a temptation that's out of your weight class. You're never going to be up against a, uh, a temptation that's too strong for you. And observe whether some such state of things be not indicated by the language of the apostle. God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above what you're able. Each one is tempted in proportion to the amount of his strength or power of resistance. So again, he does. He he goes comes back and ties the knot. So he had introduced this illustration to make a point, and as I uh, as I kind of just summarized, he does make that point. Now, although we have said that it is by the just judgment of God that everyone is tempted according to the amount of his strength, we are not therefore to suppose that he who is tempted ought by all means to prove victorious in the struggle. In like manner, as he who contends in the lists, although paired with his adversary on a just principle of arrangement, will nevertheless not necessarily prove conqueror. So, interestingly, Origen now goes off on a tangent that might not be the first thing that comes to our mind, but his point is, well, I've just said that, that you're paired up in a fair way. That doesn't mean you're always going to win. And his uh, his point his argument there is well in the if you go to these you know uh, if you go to see boxing even if the boxing match is fair even if people are matched against people who are similar strength only one of them is uh, victorious in a match not both and he continues on he says but unless the powers of the combatants are equal the prize of the victor will not be justly won nor will blame justly attached to the vanquished because he allows us indeed to be tempted but not beyond what we are able. For it is in proportion to our strength that we are tempted, and it is not written that in temptation he will, sorry, it does say, and it is not written that in temptation he will make also a way to escape so that we should be, bear it, but a way to escape so that we should be able to bear it. Not that, not, oh, so he's parsing the word very uh, carefully here. And I pause for a second. Remember that we are considering this claim that origin uh, that origin corrects an error uh, uh, about the subjunctive moods and imperatives that they're being interpreted as predetermined inevitable results, thus destroying free choice. Well, he is getting into let's see whether he's getting into the subjunctive moods and imperatives. Perhaps not yet. We'll see. Maybe he will in a moment. But he is getting into looking at, at the nuances of the words. So let's come back to the, the text of Origen himself. Uh, so again, this is the part of the page. Oh, actually, my banner that says you can comment is, is covering part of it. Let me turn that off momentarily. It says, uh, it's not, for it is in proportion to our strength that we are tempted, and it is not written that in temptation he will also make a way to escape so that we should bear it, but a way of, to escape uh, so as that we should be able to bear it. So he makes a distinction between those two, uh, two ways of considering the, the way of escape. Not a, it's a way of escape so that we should, but a way of escape so that we should be able. But it depends upon ourselves whether, uh, depends upon ourselves to use either with energy or feebleness this power which he has given us. For there is no doubt that under every temptation we have power, excuse me, under every temptation we have a power of endurance if we employ properly the strength that is granted us. But it is not the same thing to possess the power of conquering and to be victorious. As the apostle himself has shown in very cautious language, saying, God will make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Not that you will bear it, that you will be able to bear it, not that you will bear it. For many do not sustain temptation, but are overcome by it. Now God enables us not to sustain temptation, Otherwise, there would be there appear to be no struggle, but to have the power of sustaining it. But this power, which is given us to enable us to conquer, may be used according to the, our faculty of free will, either in a diligent manner, and then we prove victorious, 
or in a slothful manner, and then we are defeated. For if such a power were wholly given us, so that we must by all means prove victorious and never be defeated, what further reason for a struggle could remain to him who cannot be overcome? Or what merit is there in victory where the power of successful resistance is taken away? But if the possibility of conquering be equally conferred on us all, and if it be in our power, how to use this possibility, either diligently or slothfully, then will the vanquished be justly censured and the victor be just uh, deservedly lauded. Now from these points, which we have discussed to the best of our power, it is, I think, clearly evident that there are certain transgressions which we by no means commit under the pressure of malignant powers, while there are others, again, to which we are incited by instigation on their part to excessive and immoderate indulgence. Whence it follows, that we have to inquire how those opposing powers produce the incitements within us. Well, okay, so the opposing powers seem to be uh, these malignant powers, and there are also uh, there's also opposite powers that are applied. That's those seem to be references to what he started this discussion with. But the key point here. Is, this is obviously very free will, uh, ex expressing things in terms of free will. But what sort of free will? Well, it's a free will. It's not, it's actually not quite about the free will. So the free will takes advantage of this power that according to origin. So origin says you have these powers and then free will takes advantage of them or doesn't. But the point is that you have it within you to do these things so that it's not just that you're, you receive a temptation and therefore you're overwhelmed because you have a temptation, therefore you're overwhelmed, nor is it the case that you have a temptation and therefore you're victorious. And the key phrase that you'll notice is in here in his discussion is by all means. So it says, if such, this is about the middle of the right-hand column, for if such a, well, it's, a, it's below the two, it's uh, between 255 and 25, I'm sorry, 2555 and 2556. There's a sentence in there that's, I think, the key sentence. It says, for if such a power were wholly given us as that we must by all means prove victorious and never be defeated, what further reason for a struggle could remain to him who cannot be overcome? So the origin insists that there's some real way in which you could be overcome by the temptation, but also there's some way in which you could have victory over the temptation. And the fact that you have either of these two uh, powers or abilities is important for origin, that these are internal powers and abilities that you have that make this temptation and your resistance or overcoming it of significance. Now, I do have some pushback I would give to origin here because I would wonder how origin would then apply this theory of morality to God I think the point that the idea that if someone has such a power that they're in, not susceptible to temptation, I think that's still virtuous. And uh, I do think that someone, if someone is so uh, inclined towards evil that they're overcome by almost any temptation, again, I do think that's a reason for criticizing them. And I don't know to what extent Origen would accept that or not. I don't think those are the points he's arguing for. I think he's just arguing in a more general principle, but and therefore I don't know. I don't think he's really encountering these arguments or, or providing any real answer to them. So, uh, so that we should bear it versus that should, so that we should be able to bear it seems to be the basis. If we're coming back to our, our discussion of the book, that seems to be the part that talks about. Uh, subjunctive moods or imperatives. And there's nothing really here about imperatives or, I mean, maybe vaguely something about subjunctive moods. There's also nothing here where he's correcting an error in prevailing pagan beliefs and heretical beliefs in this particular section. Instead, he's just answering a question about the connection between our uh, actions. But I would say this, there's there's some, some minimal uh, correspondence here because 
he does seem to think that if something is totally inevitable as a result, then there's not free choice in the matter. In other words, he does seem to be saying that if you had, if you're not, uh, if by any means, or excuse me, by all means, you're going to prove victorious, it doesn't matter, the means don't matter, you're gonna prove victorious and never be defeated, then in what way is this really a struggle? <laughs> that, that wouldn't be a struggle and there wouldn't be any meaningful uh, connection to the, the freedom that we have as Christians. Now, of course, this, I'm not, you know, if we were going to apply this to, we'll see maybe uh, how this ends up getting applied in his next book when he try, tries to go after Calvinism. But for now, we'll just uh, focus on what he says here. So that leaves us, after having read that section, with his next sentence. Here he says, he teaches God's sovereign control, not Stoic providence, as being guided by this foreknowledge of human choices. And here he goes back to chapter one of book three, and he turns to section 14. So uh, once again, I do have this section and there's, uh, it's a relatively short section, but I've broken it up into two parts. So as you can see that the two parts are fairly close. And uh, I will read from the Greek side because that's the more authoritative. It's also the one he's quoting from or citing to. I don't actually don't recall right now. One second. Does he have a quotation here? No, just a citation. Uh, but this is part one, and there's also a part two. And remember, just for context, once again, we're looking for places here where he's, he teaches God's sovereign control, not stoic providence, as being guided by this foreknowledge of human choices. And so let's see what he, let's see what Origen actually says. Come now and let us use the following image from the gospel. There is a certain rock with a little surface soil on which if seeds fall, they quickly spring up. But when they what when sprung up as not having root, they are burned and withered when the sun has arisen. Now this rock is a human soul, hardened on account of its negligence and converted to stone because of its wickedness, for no one receives from God a heart created of stone, but it becomes such in consequence of wickedness. I would say this section by itself for the moment is an interesting section for the issue of total depravity to the extent that someone wants to argue whether or not Origen supports total depravity. It seems as though Origen is not happy about the idea of suggesting that a human being's heart is created of stone. It's partly because Origen doesn't have, does, is willing to say that people can become hardened over time, but he wants to preserve for them some uh, malleability initially so that they come to that point, not as having a set nature from the beginning towards destruction. Uh, instead, that they have uh, this malleable co constitution that could go towards salvation or could go towards destruction. So that's some background on, on why he has this type of view. Uh, it says, if one then were to find fault with the husbandmen, for not sowing his seed sooner upon the rocky soil, when he saw other rocky ground which had received seed flourishing, the husbandman would reply, I shall sow this ground more slowly, casting in seeds that will be able to hold, retain their hold, this slower method being better for the ground and more secure than that which receives the seed in a more rapid manner and more upon the surface. So, this is an interesting objection. Obviously, this is going in a little bit different direction. Here, the person, the the objector is saying, well, if you're telling me that the rock wasn't, he, he's already gone beyond the parable by suggesting that this rock wasn't always a rock. But then, having gone beyond the parable to say that, then, then he's raising a, a person who might object. Well, if it wasn't always a rock, he should have sown back before it became a rock. Well, 
Origen's answer here is a little bit surprising because he is suggesting that actually that God has a longer, the husbandman, which is God, has a longer term plan. And that in fact, it's better for him to sow slowly because this is going to be uh, better for the ground. I don't know how this works in the parable because in the parable, the hardened stone heart uh, receives the word, but then gets burnt, the seed gets burnt up. So we'll see. But the person finding fault would yield his assent to the husbandman as one who spoke with sound reason and who acts with skill. So also the great husbandman of all nature postpones that benefit, which might be deemed premature, that it might not prove superficial. Now, uh, this might, might connect with Origen's kind of strange view which seems to be that he seems to have of this endless cycles of lives. So that essentially if somebody doesn't uh, receive the word properly in this life, it, they're, they're just being postponed until another time in which they might receive the word. So uh, let, let's, let's continue because he he's not done with his discussion of this topic. There's a next, uh, next section on this next page. And again, I've broken this up into three segments, which approximately correspond to, the, to the, the Greek side I'm reading, but there's also the Latin side, which is just an English translation of the Latin. As you can see, it's a little bit expanded, but there's a lot of similarities. So <clears throat> continuing back into our analysis, but it's probable that here, someone may object to us with reference to this. Why do some of the seeds fall upon the earth that has superficial soil, the soil being, as it were, a rock? So, so I think that here he's kind of anticipated my, my comment, which is, so if you're saying that the husbandman is waiting to sow seeds in a slow way on this because he knows it's better for the ground, then why sow seeds on this rock in the first place? No, he also must know that the result is going to be it's going to get burned up, but why do it? Now we must say in answer to this that it was better for the soul, which desired better things precipitately, uh, precipitately, and not by a way which led to them, to obtain its desire, in order that condemning itself on this account, it may, after a long time, endure to receive the husbandry, which is according to nature. And again, this is, this is saying, God knows best, maybe there's some still some good that is going to come of this in the long run. So this superficially, you know, everybody wants things now and immediately, but wait, there's more. But here's here's what he means. He says, for souls are, as one may say, innumerable, and their habits are innumerable, and their movements and their purposes and their assaults and their efforts, of which there is only one admirable administrator who knows both the season and the fitting helps and the avenues and the ways, namely the God and Father of all things, who knows how he conducts even Pharaoh by so great events and by drowning in the sea with which latter occurrence his superintendence of Pharaoh does not cease, for he was not annihilated when drowned. For in the hand of God are both we and our words, all wisdom also, and knowledge of workmanship. So Origen here denies that the drowning of Pharaoh's army was the end of Pharaoh's army. He doesn't, he's not willing to give up hope for people who are lost. So for him, he's, he chalks this up to divine providence. He doesn't use the word providence here. We saw him use it in the previous one. And that, of course, that was translating from the Latin side because there was only Latin there. Uh, and here, I'm just uh, not sure if he says he, what, it, what exactly it says, but he says one admirable administrator and uh, the, the control is definitely here, but there's no, con there's no explicit contrast yet with any other position, just a defense of God for sowing seeds on ground that's going to reject it, on stony, hardened ground. And it says that he has his superintendence of Pharaoh doesn't cease. So it's not like God has lost his chances with Pharaoh because Pharaoh is uh, dead. There's, 
as I said, Origin has this curious theory that seems to suggest that people come back and, and get another, and keep and, and God works on them again, so that the you know a lesson they learned from the previous life somehow carries through in some way. I, I hate to speculate too much about it. There's a lot of Origin's works that are missing, and how he exactly defends this is, seems to be missing. But anyway, the final bit at the bottom is, and such is a moderate defense with regard to the statement that Pharaoh's heart was hardened and that God has mercy upon whom he will have mercy and whom he will, he hardens. So he's he's defending that statement, which we saw in previous episodes that he is one of the statements that he's often fascinated with. He's fascinated with it because of people who will say that people are just created with a rock nature, essentially, and, and are impervious throughout their lives to the gospel because of this rock nature. And other people are created with a save, savable nature, and they are the people who are saved. And Origen has a different way of looking at things. But he does defend God's timing. And interestingly here, he does, he has a some comment about the, that the human soul is hardened on account of its negligence and, and converted to stone. Sorry, this is on the previous slide. Uh, by its negligence and converted to stone through it's uh, because of its wickedness and that this hardening is a consequence of wickedness. That's true, but yet uh, the fact is that everybody recognizes if that's just the case, then why couldn't God have sown the seed earlier before the person got so hard? And Origen says, nope, God has long-term plans for this person. So it, this is his way of harmonizing the idea that he hardens whom he will and he shows mercy on, it, on whom he will. That part of that is knowing which, which lifetime in which to do that for people. Or so it seems. Uh, let's see, I think we had one more, uh, one more material to consider. And for that, it's not in our handout. So, we're going to, let's see, we'll go to the Philokalia, chapter 25. I will share uh, that, that instead at the stream. Sorry for the font size. Again, a bit small, but hopefully still readable. So before, I guess before we get there, I need to set up why we're going to read this section. So that means back to this tab. So as you can see, he brings up the file Calia 25.2 because he's, he says, uh, after quoting Romans 8, 29, uh, Romans 8, 28 to 29, he explains the church's teaching against heretics. For ordination occurs by God's foreknowledge, which specifically means conforming Christians to Christ's image he even posits that God utilizes middle knowledge. So uh, let's consider this point. I, I think there's a, you know, while the concept of middle knowledge itself may not be in uh, origin, I think there's more merit than you would expect for this assertion. So this is from... This section of the Philokalia is from book one of the commentary on the epistle to the Romans at the words separated unto the gospel of God. I don't know why. First of all, I do not know why uh, he's quoting from the Philokalia rather than from the uh, commentary on the epistle to the Romans. But... That, in any event, that's where this is from. So I'll start with the first section to give us some context because, you know, if, uh, the, the only introduction here is it says the foregoing is taken from book seven of the preparation of the gospel of Eusebius, which is obviously this, the foregoing and so forth, that's editorial comments by, by someone, not the... Uh, not origins on work. So this uh, chapter, the third point 
to notice is the phrase separated unto the gospel of God. And in the epistle to the Galatians, the apostle says the same thing about himself. When it was the good pleasure of God who separated me, even from my mother's womb, to reveal his son in me, they who do not understand that anyone who is predestined through the foreknowledge of God is the cause of the events foreknown, take hold of such expressions as these and think that they can by them establish their doctrine that men are so constituted by nature that they must be saved. So, uh, this is the doctrine that he's fighting. He's fighting this doctrine that men are so constituted by nature a specific way that they must be saved. And some employ such passages to destroy man's free will and also make use of the words in the Psalms, the wicked are estranged from the womb. We may easily meet this by asking them to explain what comes next, for it is written, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. And we'll ask those who insist on the clearness of the words, whether the wicked who are estranged from the womb, as soon as they were born, went astray and erred from the way of salvation, and whether this was their own doing. And how could the wicked who are estranged from the womb both go astray as soon as they were born and also speak lies? For our opponents, I suppose, will never be able to show that in the moment of birth they uttered an articulate cry and told lies. If, however, we observe the steps by which we approach predestination in the argument of the epistle, which we are examining, we shall, once we have disposed of what inclines the simpler sort of readers to justify the charge of injustice brought against God's decree, be able to defend him who separated from his mother's womb and separated unto the gospel of God, Paul, the servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. The words stand thus, we know that to them that love God, all things work together for good, even to them that are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also foreordained to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he foreordained, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. So I pause here because that's the material directly quoted from Romans 8, 28 and 29. That's the part that's uh, identified correctly by Dr. Wilson here. So, so far we're, we're tracking. After quoting Romans 8, 28 to 29, it says, he says, after that he explains the church's teaching against heretics, for ordination occurs by God's foreknowledge, which specifically means conforming Christians to Christ's image. He even posits that God utilizes middle knowledge. And we will come down to see what whether that's uh, something we can agree with or not. But let's, let's continue. So let's then call, let us then attend to the order of these statements. God first calls and then justifies. And he does not justify those whom he did not call. And he calls having before the calling foreordained. And he does not call whom he did not foreordain. And the foreordaining is not the origin of his calling and justifying, for if it were the origin of all that follows, they who bring in by a side wind the absurd doctrine of souls being naturally constituted might very plausibly have claimed the victory. But the foreknowledge comes before the foreordaining. For whom he did foreknow, says the apostle, he also foreordained to be conformed to the image of his son. So then God first surveyed the long series of events. Okay, so I pause for a moment. And I would say, interestingly, the, uh, remember this, the position he's arguing against, we've talked about it before, is this idea that some people are naturally constituted for salvation, some are naturally constituted for perdition, and he is origin saying that if the for if the uh, foreordaining was the first link in the chain, then it would seem like these people had won. But he's uh, put for for knowledge first, and origin's going to take this in a in an interesting way, very interesting for our discussion. I, I'm not one I would agree with, but anyway, he, here's his. Uh, Here's his explanation. So then God first surveyed the long series of events 
and perceiving the will of certain men to be inclined to godliness, and also their efforts to attain thereto, when their will was so inclined, and further, how they would wholly give themselves up to a virtuous life, he foreknew them, for he knows the present and foreknows the future, and whom he thus foreknew, he foreordained to be conformed to the image of his son. So, it, this is the part that's going to be the basis for uh, accusing or, or uh, crediting origin with some discussion of middle knowledge. It, it's, it falls short of being true middle knowledge for a number of reasons, but most critically that uh, origin's not distinguishing between free knowledge and natural knowledge. And therefore, to have middle knowledge doesn't quite work. But there's aspects of this that are similar to a middle knowledge view. There's also some aspects here that are similar to a simple foreknowledge view. But let's try to make sense as well of what he says. But let's see as well. Let's see when he says foreordination occurs by God's foreknowledge, which specifically means conforming Christians to Christ's image. I don't know what he means by that. Clearly, the text itself talks about being conformed to the image of God. So, of course, the text is, uh, is talking about that. That isn't the point that that's at dispute with the heretics. The heretics are suggesting that some people, I mean, these are not even really heretics. They're essentially non-Christians. But anyway, they, they're saying that there's this natural knowledge or this natural uh, corrupt state that people are created in, that they simply go down that path and other people with a different creative nature. So there's two different creative natures of men. But, and that's what he's fighting with, that not whether they're con to con be conformed to Christ's image, but he does mention this idea of God looking ahead. So let's, let's carefully consider this one more time. He, for, for see, he surveys a long series of events, sees the will of certain men to be inclined to godliness, and also the effort, their efforts to attain when their will was so inclined. So he sees people. Now, to me, this sounds more like a compatibilistic view than a, uh, than a libertarian free will uh, sense, because... There's these people have an inclination to godliness. And he also sees if they're, uh, you know, when they're so inclined, whether they're being successful in achieving their goals and who will actually give themselves up to a virtuous life. Once he, he, he foreknows this, he knows the present and foreknows the future. So he foreknows these people. And then he foreordains them to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, I think Origen's argument here is terrible. I don't agree with it at all. But this is Origen's argument. So we have to take at him, especially for considering a historical theology question, we have to take Origen as he is, not as we would like him. But that's what he's saying. Somehow God is seeing these events in the future before they occur, including... Uh, everything the people do, including giving themselves up to a virtuous life. And then based on that, he foreordains them to be conformed to the image of his son. Now we know there is a person who is the image of the invisible God and it is his image, which is called the image of the son of God. And we think that this image is the human soul, which the son of God assumed and for which for its merit became the image of the image of God. And it was to this, which we think is the image of the image of the son of God, that God foreordained those to be conformed, who, on account of his foreknowledge of them, he did foreordain. We must not therefore suppose that the foreknowledge of God is the cause of future events. So he this is true. This this is a true statement. He's not he is not suggesting that the that foreknowledge causes the events. And I'm trying to remember, I think there was some statement. Uh, he says it was guided in one of the previous sentences. He had said it was guided by foreknowledge, but 
He says, we shouldn't suppose that foreknowledge is the cause, but inasmuch as these events would follow the agent's own impulses, on this account he foreknew, because he knows all things before they are. And inasmuch as he knows all things before they are, he foreknew certain individuals and foreordained them to be conformed to the image of his son, but others he saw estranged. So, again, he, God is seeing the people who are better and the people who are worse, and he's rewarding the good and, and punishing the evil on Origen's idea here. And if anyone objects and asks whether God foreknows might, whether what God foreknows might possibly not occur, we shall say it possibly might not, but granting this possibility, there's no necessity that it should occur or not occur, and the events will not in the least be necessitated, but there's also the possibility of their not occurring. Now, this is a an answer that's, that's a, that is pushing this closer to the middle knowledge view, because you see, they're saying that God, the things that God foreknows might possibly not occur, or they might, uh, or they might, and they're not necessitated, and there's the possibility of their not occurring. And, but what is, what's uh, Origen's answer on this? So he throws out this idea that it possibly might not, but then he says this, you have to love, you have to appreciate this comment if you've ever had these debates. The subject of possibilities, however, belongs to the science of the skilled logician, so that if a man will cleanse the eye of his mind, he may thus be able to follow the subtle arguments and may understand how, even in the course of ordinary events, there's nothing to prevent the possibility of a given circumstance issuing many ways, though in fact, there will be only one out of the many, and that not necessitated, and the foreknowledge of it means that it will be, but will not of necessity be, for though it may possibly not occur, the prediction of it will not be conjecture, but real foreknowledge. So he just kind of re-insists that indeed uh, there, there's a, it's compatible to have God foreknow something and for the thing to occur, but not occur of necessity. So that it, it occurs uh, possibly or something like that. So it's real foreknowledge. The prediction is not just conjecture, but... Uh, but nevertheless, the thing may or may not occur. But you have to be a logician to figure that out. And uh, ordinary people couldn't. So he's kind of leaving out, out that, that part of the equation. Uh, now, there is a criticism that we might raise. And I'm going beyond, of course, what, uh, what Dr. Wilson raises here. But let's consider what he says. And says, and let no one think that we have said nothing about the phrase according to his purpose because it may seem to hamper our argument. For Paul says, we know that to them who, that love God, all things work together for good, even to those that are called according to his purpose. The critic should observe that the apostle also at once gave the reason for being, their being called according to his purpose. This version seems to have called instead of called. I'm not sure why. Uh, according to his purpose, saying, whom he did foreknow, them he also foreordained to be another type of, conformed to the image of his son, and who more fitting to be included in the justifying calling by the purpose of God than those who love him. And that the cause of the purpose and foreknowledge lies in our free will is clearly shown by the words, we know that all things work together for the good of them, excuse me, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. For Paul, all but said, that if all things work together for good, the reason is that they who love God are worthy of their working together. <clears throat> so I, I just point out, this is the, you know, if, you have, if you're going to take origin, the parts you like, just be careful because it's also going to come with some parts you probably don't like, which I would assume most people who are watching or listening are going to be unhappy with origin saying, even if they like this idea of something similar to middle knowledge, they're not going to like when uh, he says that the reason is that they who love God are worthy of their working together. And here, let us ask our opponents a question. Let them give us an answer. Just for a moment, let's assume that we have some measure of free will. And we will tell them that this is a fact, 
though they seek to destroy free will. Until on that assumption, we can prove the unsoundness of their view. If free will is indeed a reality, will God, when he considers the chain of future events, foreknow what will be done by each possessor of free will through the exercise of that free will, or will he not foreknow? <clears throat> to say that he will not foreknow is worthy of a man who knows nothing of the omniscience and majesty of God. But if they will admit his foreknowledge, let's ask him another question. Is his knowing the cause of future occurrences, assuming that men have free will? Or does he foreknow because the events will come to pass? And is it the truth that his foreknowledge is by no means the cause of what will result from man's free will? It's then possible for a man created free under given circumstances not to do one thing and to do another thing. <clears throat> so, we can say this much. The, uh, our friend Origen definitely has this intense view of free will to the point where he is willing to make some sacrifices by suggesting that God's foreordination is based on foreseeing uh, merit. So we will here, we'll pause, because next time we're going to get into some discussion of O'Leary and McIntyre, which he says separately, I don't recall, I have to look on the hard copy to see the next page here. Uh, he says that they separately conclude something. I don't know what he means by they separately conclude, but uh, he has two citations or two footnotes. He has a, oh, I see. So if you look at the bottom of the page, although uh, there's no, sorry, let me, uh, Let me take off this banner for the moment. As you can see at the bottom of the page, there's a first block quotation, which has a slightly different look to it than the main text. And then a second block quotation, again, with a slightly different look than the main text. The first one is from O'Leary, a 2004 work, and then the other is from McIntyre, 2005 work. So God willing, maybe next time we can consider the rest of this page and we can consider what uh, O'Leary and McIntyre have to say about this. And as well, we can maybe we can consider the quotations that they provide, although you can see that some of them are quite long. So like Philocalia 23, for example, which is a fairly sizable chunk of reading. But we, maybe it makes sense to read it. In any event, we'll, God willing, that's where we'll pick up next time. I'm going to take a quick peek to make sure there aren't any pressing or urgent questions from any of the audience. And uh, I don't, assuming I don't see any, then we'll just leave things there for now. Uh, I see just a, uh, just a very little feedback. So, all right, that's good. We have uh, plenty to consider. I hope that God blesses your study of scripture, and this is obviously no substitute for studying scripture directly, it's just to studying one of the historic theologians. So let me stop sharing that. And thank you all for listening along so quietly, patiently. Uh, God willing, next time we start with concurring with prior Christian authors, God's foreknowledge of free choice was essential to understanding God's election of persons to the beatific vision, which he puts in predest as predestination in, in parentheses, as uh, he says, O'Leary and McIntyre separately conclude. But we'll, we'll take a peek at that next time, God willing. And we saw this, you know, for the in terms of the things that we've considered so far, this has been one of the more positive cases. I mean, we don't see exactly, uh, we didn't see exactly the uh, an explicit use of middle knowledge, but something close. And uh, we didn't 
see exactly him say, you know, focusing on the con conformity of Christians to Christ's image, which, is, you know, as I said, this this emphasis is not here. Instead, he's just requoting the the scripture text, which says to be conformed to Christ's image, and the uh, he doesn't. We, as well, he doesn't specifically say the church is teaching this. This his own teaching. He's not. He doesn't refer to the church at all. And in the previous section, he didn't mention Stoic providence or contrast it to Stoic providence. And um, there was mention, though, of foreknowledge of human choices, and there was mention of God's sovereign control, and. Um, the, there was some discussion of what scripture said, but though the subjunctive moods and imperatives didn't really seem to be supported. And then uh, as well, he seemed to reject the idea of inevitability of results. So with that, thanks again, everyone who is watching. I look forward to the next episode with you and God be with you.